Foundational documents of marijuana laws around much of the world today are a trio of United Nations conventions that were passed over the course of about three decades, from the early 1960s until the late 1980s. The 1961 Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs was passed as an effort to truncate production and limit the global supply of narcotic and narcotic-like substances except for some few specific purposes, like those related to certain medical treatments and those related to scientific research. This convention also updated an earlier convention from 1931 to include synthetic opioids, many of which had emerged in recent decades, along with a shortened, easier-to-navigate process for adding newly emerging synthetics to the banned list as they're discovered or developed. The 30s-era convention had only provided control mechanisms for substances like opium, cocaine, and heroin, but a large chunk of the global drug trade had since shifted to synthetics because they were often more powerful, cheaper to make, and easier to ship. So this new convention gave countries adhering to these standards and working together to weaken the global drug trade additional tools and rules to utilize in that pursuit. The 1971 Convention on Psychotropic Substances further updated the existing body of illegal drug-related regulations to include psychoactive drugs like amphetamines, barbiturates, benzodiapines, and psychedelics. This convention also limited the use of such drugs to some medical treatments and relevant research. And the 1988 Convention Against Illicit Traffic in Narcotic Drugs and Psychotropic Substances added new powers for agencies attempting to enforce those previous conventions, giving regulators and law enforcement entities novel mechanisms to fight increasingly well-funded and well-entrenched drug-trade-enriched criminal organizations, providing methods for international law enforcement to work together to take down very wealthy, well-connected, and international criminal organizations, along with new processes and tools for seizing assets and countering the rooted political and social power such groups often enjoy, via the coercion of banks, through the sharing of otherwise secret records, and through extradition, among other new drug-busting mechanisms. For a UN convention to become law in a particular country, that country must first ratify it locally, meaning folks at the UN, including representatives of member states, create a document. That document is either passed or not passed into international law by the United Nations, and then member states either sign on or do not sign on to adhere to that law. Some countries have governments that make this a fairly straightforward process. The leader or small group of leaders decide what to sign and what not to sign. In other countries, their democratic governmental bodies must decide whether to ratify something or not. In general, it can be beneficial to sign on to popular international conventions because it implies that your local laws on things like trade or drug enforcement or travel restrictions will sync up with the laws elsewhere meaning that you have more international plug-and-play capabilities when it comes to making trade deals, setting up travel rights for your citizenry, and collaborating with law enforcement in other nations. 
Not all countries sign on to all conventions, though. For example, only 186 of the 193 United Nations member states signed on to that 1988 drug convention, and only 184 signed on to the one from 1971. National approaches to drug regulation and enforcement, then, vary from place to place. Though most of the world adheres to something similar to these United Nations policies, even if they didn't sign on to the conventions themselves, we see variation in laws between most nations, though, whether they signed on or not, in some cases just in practice, maybe there's something on the books that they don't enforce or only enforce selectively, but also because the specifics of the law can vary from region to region within a particular nation. And that's perhaps especially true right now when it comes to one drug in particular. There are two main types of cannabis plant, hemp and marijuana. The former is a low or no THC cannabis, while the latter is a comparably high THC type of cannabis. The former is used for all kinds of things, the latter is more typically used for its chemical properties as a drug. And THC is the acronym for tetrahydrocannabinol, which is the intoxicating chemical found in cannabis plants. So cannabis is a designation for a type of plant, marijuana is typically the name used for the drug version of that plant, and hemp is usually the name used for the non-drug version of it. But the word cannabis has become synonymous with marijuana in many cases, including within much of the legal cannabis industry in the United States. So I'll be primarily using that term throughout this episode for the drug version of the plant as well. As I record this, there are four countries, Canada, Georgia, South Africa, and Uruguay, that have legalized the recreational use of cannabis. 42 countries have legalized the medical use of cannabis, and a few more than that have legalized some cannabis-derived drugs, but not the raw form of the drug. Under U.S. federal law, so the law of the whole United States rather than individual state law, the use, sale, and possession of cannabis over 0.3% THC, so that's the legally defined line between hemp and marijuana if you want to think about it in those terms, Cannabis with over 0.3% THC is illegal in the country, according to federal law in the United States. Hemp is legal to grow in the U.S. as of 2018, and some universities and agricultural research facilities are allowed to grow cannabis as part of their research into industrial possibilities for the plant, but beyond that, it's typically not allowed. It's illegal. At the state level, however, 11 states, two territories, and Washington, D.C. have legalized the recreational use of cannabis. Additionally, 33 states, four territories, and Washington, D.C. have legalized cannabis for medical use. There have been attempts to reschedule the drug to make it a less serious crime to get caught using or possessing it at the federal level, but those efforts have thus far failed. And there have been efforts to increase the rights of states to tend to their own business when it comes to the legal status of this drug. But these efforts, too, have so far only earned states the right to issue licenses to local dispensaries. So it's a weird in-between space that the country finds itself in right now, in which it's kinda sorta legal to grow, sell, possess, and use some types of cannabis in some places. Very illegal in the prison sentence sense, to do the same in other places, including at times right across the state border, 
and it's incredibly unclear which way the wind will shift next, as fully legalizing, or at the very least more fully legalizing, cannabis usage in the United States is very popular right now, based on polling data. But there are quite a few significant, well-entangled laws on the books that not only illegalize it, but illegalize it in such a way that folks in some areas suffer enormous consequences for minor infractions, while other people are able to get away with the same or even far more just a few miles down the road. What I'd like to talk about today is something that just happened in Colorado that might upset the legal apple cart when it comes to U.S. cannabis laws, locally and nationally, and what it might mean for people who have fallen afoul of existing and recently defunct laws. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to unspool today comes from the Denver Post, and it's entitled Colorado Governor to Mass Pardon 2,700-plus Marijuana Convictions. In early September of 2020, the governor of the U.S. state of Colorado announced his intention to pardon 2,732 people who had been charged with low-level cannabis possession crimes. This came on the heels of an earlier effort at the beginning of the year to pass a bill that would give him the power to mass pardon people in this way, applicable to folks who were convicted of possessing up to two ounces of cannabis. The logic here is that the current legal limit for folks who have clearance to use cannabis for medical purposes is two ounces, so continuing to label some people criminals, while others are not labeled the same for doing essentially the same thing, isn't really fair or rational. What's more, even a very minor possession offense can follow a person around for the rest of their lives, influencing their job prospects, their ability to get student loans, and their ability to get concealed carry permits for firearms, among other things. This is not just a matter of getting someone out of a one-off punishment then, but potentially a matter of helping some people avoid a cascade of negative lifetime consequences as a result of, again, doing something that a great many people in Colorado are today able to do legally. There are caveats to this plan, which hasn't gone into full effect yet as of the day I'm recording this, including an assessment of folks who might be doubled up in the system because they were convicted for this type of crime more than once, and an assessment of other related and unrelated crimes that might influence whether a pardon is allowed in any individual case. The pardon also won't fully expunge the crime from a person's record. It will remove evidence of the possession conviction from public records, so it won't show up in a background check, for instance, but it will still be in law enforcement records, though amended with a note about the governor's pardon. Regarding that last point, though, State Representative James Coleman has said that he hopes to fully expunge from all records this type of crime that is no longer a crime in the state in the near future, maybe as soon as 2021. He also hopes to provide pathways for folks who were previously operating illegally, selling cannabis outside the legal framework, to help them figure out ways to sell legally if they choose to do so, which could potentially be good for them, but also be good for the state's burgeoning cannabis industry. 
This is being presented as a pretty big deal, but notably, it is not the first time something like this has happened, though the other comparable instances also occurred quite recently. Earlier in 2020, the Nevada government automatically pardoned over 15,000 people who had been convicted of low-level cannabis possession. Nevada is another U.S. state where the moderated use and sale of previously fully illegal cannabis products is now legal. A similar effort in California could clear the records of tens of thousands of convicted cannabis possessors if that effort makes it all the way through the legal process. And the intention of all three of these efforts is to pull people who were convicted under now antique laws out of the negative spiral that can result from even a minor conviction on one's record, denying them, in some cases, the right to vote, but also job opportunities, financial opportunities, and the application of an at-times lifelong social and legal stigma. These and similar efforts are part of a larger wave of cannabis industry-friendly legislation that are becoming increasingly common in state-level settings, but which are still quite absent from federal law, from the laws of the United States as a country, as opposed to the laws of individual states. Many of those federal laws, and arguably the overall federal stance on drugs, and perhaps cannabis in particular, are the consequence of the so-called War on Drugs, which was declared during the presidency of Richard Nixon, who, according to John Ehrlichman, the assistant to the president for domestic affairs under Nixon, launched the anti-drug campaign as part of a larger plot to take out his political and ideological enemies. From a now-famous interview with Ehrlichman in Harper's Magazine in 1994 about Nixon and his war on drugs. Quote, The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. End quote. So, that's pretty horrific. But it also proved fairly effective in giving the Nixon administration a lever to use against these groups that he wanted to vilify and neutralize, both in the sense that they could then be labeled as bad influences on society that shouldn't be listened to, and in the sense that they could then be more freely locked up if they got in his administration's way. Yes, the drug trade was an issue in the United States, and it was increasingly popular to bang the drum for increased enforcement against people who used drugs and people who sold drugs during this time. It was a great way to rally one's base, especially if one's base happened to be somewhat or very conservative. But it was also an excellent means of painting one's opponents with a label that would render them less effective and cause them to be taken less seriously. The point being, not that drugs aren't an issue then, and definitely not that other crimes associated with drug dealing, like human trafficking, murders and blackmails, kidnappings, things like that, are not an issue, but rather that the fundamental components of the U.S. drug enforcement system are predicated on policies that allow law enforcement to paint with a very broad brush, 
and which consequently covers a huge swath of substances and use cases, even those that, according to many studies, are about as or even less harmful than legal substances like alcohol, nicotine, and some types of painkiller. Drugs can be dangerous and associated with horrible things, in other words, but they're not equally horrible and equally associated with those horrible things. And in some cases, the very structures meant to prevent negative outcomes are what lead to the worst outcomes. And this is true for some groups of people more than others. While violent crime rates decreased steadily over the course of the late 90s and early 2000s, and continue to decrease today, on average, across the United States, drug-related crimes skyrocketed, in part because more people were using drugs, but also because enforcement of laws against minor offenses took off in a big way under the Ronald Reagan administration, culminating with the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986. Since 1980, the number of drug offenders in prison has increased 12-fold, and the sudden surge in inmates led to the development and empowerment of a for-profit private prison industry, which, over the past few decades, has consistently lobbied against watering down drug laws that land a lot of people in prison for very minor offenses because that would theoretically reduce the amount of people put in prison in the United States, and as a result, would reduce their profits. From the beginning, too, there has been a disparity in the sorts of people who tend to be charged with drug-related offenses, which probably shouldn't be surprising based on that quote from Ehrlichman about Nixon's intentions with these policies, but the fact that this continues to be the case today is at least somewhat surprising, considering the number of administrations we've had that have not hated hippies and the African-American community quite as much as Nixon did. Nonetheless, African-American men make up the vast majority of both drug arrests and drug-related incarcerations, though the incarceration rate for women, especially African-American women, but also women from other minority groups, while still small in overall numbers in direct comparison to men, is growing at a much faster rate than it is for men, about twice as fast, in fact. The United States had a fairly average imprisonment rate, about 100 prisoners per 100,000 people, until the 1980s, when the war on drugs was declared. It skyrocketed from there, peaking in 2008, when around one in every 100 U.S. citizens was incarcerated, a higher rate, according to some estimates at least, than was found in the Soviet Union during the heyday of the Gulag system which is not a good look to become numerical peers with an authoritarian prison camp system. Part of what the politicians who are in favor of these pardons are trying to accomplish here is not just making law enforcement more equitable, though that would almost certainly be a consequence of loosening these sorts of laws and removing conviction records from some people's dockets. The goal is to put the brakes on the creation of a permanent, often multi-generational underclass that has a range of disincentives to participate in society, in the same way as everyone else, and which suffers under a slew of disadvantages that other people do not face. It seems like a small thing from the outside, but entering the system in the United States can seriously constrain a person's options, not just for a time, but forever. And because someone whose options are constrained will tend to, on average, have worse outcomes than a peer who is similar in every way except for those constraints, 
their kids and their kids' kids might also suffer from a collection of decisions and laws that put a ceiling over what their parents and grandparents could do and achieve, all because they used or got caught holding some cannabis, even a small amount of cannabis, at some point in their lives. At the moment, most efforts to ameliorate the situation, which is self-reinforcing because of the economic and political incentives in place, revolve around action at the local level, most frequently focusing on decriminalizing the use and possession of cannabis, because removing the consequences for having and using it, the enforcement of the laws about such things that are on the books, is often far simpler to accomplish than killing off the laws that make it illegal in the first place. The next step is then to try to help those who were caught in that legal net before the decriminalization took place. This is a solution that not everyone is happy with. Some because they don't think criminals, even those who did something that's no longer illegal, should get away with having broken the law when it was the law. And some because they don't think these processes are moving fast enough. But it's moving forward at a decently steady pace, nonetheless. And there's a good chance that if something does eventually happen at the national level, it will happen as a result of the positive consequences demonstrated by these local-level actions, in terms of economics, but also in terms of voter favorability of these actions, which thus far seems to be quite high in the applicable regions. It is legitimate to ask that question of whether someone who commits a crime, even if that crime later becomes not a crime, or less of a crime, should be let off the hook, or otherwise have their sentence adjusted to account for the new legal reality that has emerged since they were incarcerated or charged. That's arguably a separate question, though, from what we do about systemic structural inequalities when we discover them, and how we adjust our legal system realities to fit with our updated, often faster-moving social realities. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called If Then, How the Simulmatics Corporation Invented the Future by Jill Lepore. This is a book about a corporation that emerged before modern computing, or I guess you could say at the beginning of modern computing, the very early stages before personal computers were a thing that everybody had, much less smartphones and things like that, and how even back then, at the dawn of the microprocessor and everything that came next, there were people who were trying to figure out how to use these devices, how to use these tools to sort people into groups, to predict people's actions and opinions, to rig elections, to help people find a mate. And this book goes through the history of this corporation that seemed to be a few decades ahead of its time, but also the offshoot technologies and the things that have emerged as a consequence of those earlier efforts. This was kind of a proto-modern tech company that made pretty big waves back in the day, but arguably its greatest contribution, and the most horrible thing that it accomplished, was the creation of many of these technologies that we in equal parts love and hate, that we take for granted, but that we also wish in some ways would go away. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of If Then by Jill Lepore. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. 
You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the show at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, wherever you get your podcasts or at brainlenses.com, and you can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. Feel free to reach out on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.